In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. You have indeed found No Persinium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. We've got a supersized episode for you this week as we come back from hiatus. Oh man, this one is going to be a lot of fun. This week on the show, Ahmed Best joins us to talk about Ascension, the latest production of Echo Theater Company here in Los Angeles that he directed. Ascension is an interactive play originally planned for Zoom that has been transformed into a live show. CNET's Scott Stein drops in to talk shop about all the metaverse news that's been occurring since we've been on break. And the venture fund's Tipitat Chenavasan settles in for a deep dive on how the immersive world looks from his vantage point in Silicon Valley's venture capital world. Those of you who follow us on Twitter know I promised you a banger of a show, and I think we've delivered. Here's another show that's going to be a banger, The Next Stage Summit and Mini Festival, which is coming up this January in Pasadena on the 7th, 8th, and 9th. We've been pulling out all the stops of late and have some exciting festival performer and summit speaker announcements, some of which you're about to hear first, before we've put it anywhere else. Let's start with the performers, which we announced earlier this week. We're pleased to tell you that Linked Dance Theater, Candle House Collective, and solo artist Siobhan Lachlan have all signed back on to the mini-festival part of the next stage. They will all be performing live and in person. Uh, this is something that uh, some of them haven't done in a while. Uh, Siobhan did a short run uh, here in LA over the summer. Uh, Linked, I don't think, I, I don't think it's done a, a live show since pandemic. And Candle House while having done live shows in the past, has been mostly doing remote stuff even before the pandemic. So this is going to be pretty exciting uh, for those of you who follow the space closely to get a chance to connect and catch some of this performance live. All right. They join Scout Expedition Company with The Nest, Mr. and Mischief with Escape from Gatto, and Corin Wick's casting in the already announced lineup And there is more in the pipeline, some of which I am dying to tell you, but can't quite tell you yet. Mostly because I need to get the assets in. Uh, Once we do, oh man. So expect me to be equally excited next week. Now, let's break some speaker news here. Los Angeles's The Speakeasy Society, fresh off a partnership with Meow Wolf involving integrating live performance into Convergence Station in Denver, will be on hand to dive into the future of their company. And The Speakeasy's Julianne Just and Genevieve Gearhart will lead a performance workshop during the weekend. We've also got creative technologist Alex Kalum of Agile Lens joining the speaker lineup. Alex will help demystify the world of XR architecture for the uninitiated and will be leveraging his deep knowledge of tools like Unreal to help drive the summit conversations about integrating live performance and XR tech. Alex kind of teaches Unreal stuff for Epic Games, uh, the people who make Unreal. So he knows around it, his way around it, pretty pretty good and that's just what we can tell you about this week but we're busy little mice booking away 
oh, the places will go. Uh, look, all badges are on sale right now. Prices are going up on the 19th. And yeah, uh, it's already pretty pricey. Uh, there's some big juicy speaker and festival announcements hitting between now and the 19th. So we're trying to like let everyone, you know, make quality decisions before we're pushing the price forward. Uh, but we want people to jump in now. Uh, and remember, we've already got Walt Disney Imagineering, the Royal Shakespeare Company, Constellation Immersive, The Department, Jadu, and artists like Risa Puno, uh, who works with Super Blue. They're already in the mix, and we're just adding even more hotness. Uh, so grab those badges so I can stop selling them <laughs> and vamping on the show and get back to just making this show and making that show. I'd love to be doing that part. All right, www.experiencethenextstage.com. That's the Enter the Matrix style vanity URL. Go check it out for more information. And now, here's Catherine Yu with the headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Proscenium. Here's what's in your immersive headlines for November 5th. Hold on tight, we've got a lot of catching up to do. In case you missed it, during last week's Facebook Connect event, the company previously known as Facebook has rebranded itself to Meta and announced a grand vision for the future of XR and the Metaverse. Meta plans to spend a whopping $10 billion on Metaverse projects in 2021 alone. At the same time, the company also announced some other changes such as leaving the Oculus brand behind. That means that the Oculus Quest will now be known as the MetaQuest. The company's immersive social experiences will all fall under the umbrella of Meta Horizon, with a new Horizon Home product to become your new landing pad on the Quest soon. Additionally, MetaQuest users will no longer be required to have a Facebook login to use their devices starting as soon as next year. And Meta has also acquired Within, the studio behind the popular fitness app Supernatural. However, rumors of a new Quest 2 Pro have turned out to be premature, as the company has announced Project Cambria, a new high-end headset expected to ship next year, aimed at prosumers and the enterprise market. Meanwhile, the company is also tackling augmented reality challenges through Project Nazair, attempting to someday be able to manufacture lightweight AR glasses. And in a fun move, Oprah has also named the Quest one of her favorite things. But not everything is rosy in Metaland. The outspoken Oculus Consulting CTO John Carmack criticized the meta announcement, stating that we all need to be much more practical about this vision of the future and calling the idea a, quote, honeypot trap for architecture astronauts, end quote. The devil is truly in the details of what you build, he says. Carmack also points out that a walled garden approach, like the one taken by Roblox, is the most obvious path to the metaverse. But he also cautions against a single company making all the decisions on behalf of users and creators. Not to be outdone, Microsoft Teams also recently announced that users will soon have access to avatars, and their product will be available in AR and VR starting next year. Meanwhile, in augmented reality land, Niantic has announced it's closing down its Harry Potter-themed location-based game, Wizards Unite. This is on the heels of also shutting down its version of Settlers of Catan in September. More to come from Niantic, who are holding an event this coming Monday to officially launch their new Lightship developer kit. And in other news, this year's Indicate Festival of Independent Games saw a number of projects from the immersive and interactive world recognized. Awardees included no-pro favorites like Claws, The Telelibrary, Hall of Vista, Field Guide to Memory, and more. 
If you still can't get enough of spooky season even though it's November, Darkfield has partnered with the BBC on a new creepy podcast series called Dead House. The first few episodes are already online. And Secret Cinema has announced a Ghostbusters online event based upon the original film from 1984. Tickets are now on sale for the Gates of Gozer virtual live experience, with IRL versions coming to New York and London at some point in the future. And over in theme park news, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser bookings have opened to the public. Rooms for all of March and all of April are already sold out, with May nearly sold out as well, per friend of the show, Ricky Briganti. Though we should note, voyages are only available through the end of September at the moment. The Halcyon takes flight starting in March 2022 with 100 cabins and suites on board. These have been a double edition of your immersive headlines. Thanks, Catherine. We'll have more about Meadow when we talk with Scott Stein later in the show. But right now, if you thought that Oculus name change was going to be next year, think again. Today, Disney, ILM, XLab, and Meta announced that they're hosting an event promoting the MetaQuest 2 and Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland this season. Details at nopersinium.com. Oculus really is no more. Well, that is, unless the lawsuits change things. Multiple companies are suing for trademark infringement. Turns out there were a lot of companies using Meta in their name. I... I don't know how that's going to affect the lawsuits with a lot of companies. Maybe it's really bad. Maybe it'll make it easier. I don't envy the legal teams until people tells me how much they're all getting paid to deal with this. And then I really envy them. In a moment, our interview with Ahmed Best. Quick production note, if I sound off mic during this one, it's because I was found out when I opened the file this morning that the computer recorded it from the laptop mic all with the allegedly trusty Yeti plugged in. Uh, This is what happens when your USB cables get old. Ordered some new ones. Let's hope that stops that from happening again. Joining us now is Ahmed Best, the director of Ascension, which is currently playing over in Atwater at the Atwater Theater and is a production of the Echo Theater Company here in Los Angeles. I had the pleasure of seeing it in October. Ahmed, thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So for those who haven't had a chance to see the show, uh, could you kind of give just you know, the elevator pitch. What is what is this about and what makes it, uh, why does it land up here in the NoPro wheelhouse of immersive and interactive theater? Yeah, so Ascension um, is uh, an immersive interactive cyber play and it's about um, a woman named Monica who is a, an artificial intelligence software engineer and she creates a pod that will be able to sustain life for an amazing amount of time. And you meet Monica and you meet Rebel, who is trapped in the pod. And Rebel is trying to find a way outside of the pod and trying to reclaim her memory. And Monica is trying to find a way um, to construct the pod and see if she can actually make something that could heal people. And then we see their journey in um, throughout the play finding each other and really figuring out where they are and what is happening and why they can hear the audience. 
you know, you, you certainly see the journey, but we don't just see the audience kind of facilitates their journey. Yeah, well. it's yes, absolutely. The, the audience, we looked at the audience as a character in the play. And so the audience has to help Rebel figure out who they, who she is and help Monica figure out where she is. And with all of these uh, questions that the Rebel and Monica ask the audience, the audience has to help piece everything together. So everyone is learning what Ascension is at the same time, in real time. This is an interactive piece uh, that was developed initially for Zoom. And then, this, this is how it's described on, on opening night. And then as the rules here in Los Angeles changed, you and the team shifted it into physical space. Yeah. So uh, I'm wondering why this story, why this production in this particular form, particularly this translation from digital theater to physical theater. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I've always been, uh, you know, I started my career in theater in, in, in the 90s. And I've always not only been uh, someone who is very close to theater and loves theater, you know, as as a first love, but I love theater that's different. I love theater that's um, that challenges the audience into thinking about where we are and what we do in a different way. And so, the major theater experience for me was Stomp. I was in a show called Stomp in New York City for a lot of years, and the reason why I love Stomp it was because it was a musical without words. And it really challenged the audience to learn a communication, a way of communication in real time and how to recognize and realize what these characters on stage were doing through found object percussion. And I kind of fell in love with that. And in the 90s, when I was coming up in theater, especially theater in New York City, there was a lot of these kinds of shows. Blue Man Group was, you know, a couple blocks away, bringing the noise, bringing the funk was at the public. There was a show called De La Guarda, which was on 14th Street, which was a couple of blocks of town from us. And then, you know, more traditional, but really kind of changed the face of Broadway was Rent. And Rent started down the street. So there was this very strong contingent of alternative theater going on in New York City at the time. And I just fell in love with that. Um, and then subsequently, theater kind of went back to the regular proscenium kind of idea of what theater is. And then a bunch of things started sprinkling around the theater world that really kind of broke this fourth wall and, and, and decided to get rid of the proscenium, right? There was a show in New York called Sleep No More, mm -hmm. which was a show where you travel to different rooms. And there was... You know, a couple of other things. And then, you know, escape rooms, which is kind of like interactive, immersive theater, really became popular as well. And so I always felt like theater in, in, the, in the traditional sense needed a bit of a, a wake-up call, needed a bit of a kick in the pants. And so when we got this opportunity to do Ascension live, I felt like we could do the exact same things that we would have done technically in a real space. So we can start expanding the scope of what we believe to be theater. The things that happened, you know, during the pandemic, which was so interesting, was everyone was really becoming um, 
creative when it came to doing theater on Zoom. And I did a lot of shows on Zoom during the pandemic. And there were things that we just decided to become accustomed to. And one of those things was this ability to talk to the screen. And I always felt like that would be something that would translate very well live. But the pandemic really made that a reality, right? Because we kept doing that every day, we began to understand that communicating through the screen was a viable way of communication. And even with glitches, right? With the mute, unmute, I can't hear you on mute. Even when you have those technical glitches in communication electronically, because we've been going through this situation, we've, we've begun to forgive it, right? So I felt like that was so very interesting. But we've also had over 100 years of film and TV technique, right? And if you can take the two-dimensional aspect of communication and cinema and put it in a live form and situation, I think it would be incredibly successful and create this kind of middle ground between blockbuster movie and Broadway show where you can just do a lot more work with a lot more things. And so I try, I wanted Ascension to be the springboard for that. I wanted to experiment and see if we could actually do it. And um, we pulled it off. You mentioned Sleep No More, uh, which I think is, is a good springboard for, for this next part I want to get into. You know, uh, that form of immersive where there's a lot of traversal and you're moving around space to space. Like the audience agency is really linked to movement. Like you've got no real narrative agency in that show. Uh, and, and insofar as there's any interaction view in the characters, it's someone gets lucky, pulled aside, get their mask taken off and, you know, messed with a little bit. Yep. This piece, because of the adaptation from, from the zoom format, um, you know, you've got the audience cast in a, in a very specific role which gets revealed over time. And I think uh, you do, the production does a really great job of, of shepherding us through that reveal, um, which I gotta say is like pretty tricky because uh, yeah. there's a lot of shows that they will cast you in a role and maybe they'll tell you, like some, sometimes you get kind of a LARP scenario and someone gives you the full rules, yeah. like this is who you are and whatnot, and here's your character briefing. And then other times you'll get a little bit, Sleep No More does the whole like all, here's your mask, be quiet, we think you look better this way you know, basically shut up and move around, right? You know, it's pretty simple. Yeah, exactly. And you get the sense you're a ghost haunting the place, right? Like you, you realize in time that's that's what you are. You're one of the ghosts here, or are they the ghosts here? And that's sort of the fun. Um, here, uh, you're cast in a social role. Your identity gets revealed over time, uh, and it all kind of clicks in this place, which is great. Um but that social role, though, is also a little volatile. And, you know, there's meat on the bones of this script. There's a theme around for-profit prisons. And there's a, there's a moment that really invites the audience to maybe go for it. And, and we're in some pretty charged times. So I'm kind of wondering, like, when it comes to that and playing with that energy, you know, how are the, the live audiences navigating this that metaphorical dance, like like how much to lean in, how much to how much to sort of take the ball and run with it. Yeah, you know that was something that we really really worked on when DG Watson and I 
started developing this thing, um, we really wanted the audience to have honest interactions and be able to have a say. Mm. So um, it was really about us allowing them enough room for them to recognize and realize they do have agency over the world that they live in, right? So we tried to create situations in which it illustrated the agency of the real world. Um, as we were developing this over the pandemic, DG and I would be having these like really in-depth kind of existential conversations. And, you know, the pandemic times like didn't even seem real. It felt like we were in a <laughs> oh, yeah. play. You know what I'm saying? It felt it was just like this really strange time where it was just, you know, there were, <laughs> there were times where we would just be like, is this really happening or are we in a simulation, you know? And so we started leaning into this idea that we actually might be in a simulation. And what is that simulation? Mm-hmm. You know, who is making it? Who is creating it? What happened, right? And Ascension really came from this idea of, you know, the, the idea in quantum physics that, you know, we're all living in a sim- simulation and there's a superposition where every possibility is possible. And as we kept working and as we kept writing, we realized that the audience, as the play progresses, will be, we will ask more of them, right? Without actually revealing where they are and why they can interact and why they can see us and why they're in this room at this time. So as soon as you walk through the doors of Ascension, you're in the world, you know, even without recognizing and knowing that you're in the world. Even though you think you're walking into a theater and you're sitting in a seat, we're automatically putting you in a space where you get to start questioning things. And in the beginning, it's kind of benign and simple. Um, And then as you progress, the goal was always to be able to sit in the audience and ask the question, am I really here? And there's a part in, in the show where... Monica says, do you know where you are right now? And when we were in rehearsals, DG and I would talk and, and, and say, if we're doing our job, people are going to say no. They have no idea where they are. We are going to confuse them enough to, to make them feel like they, are, they, don't, they, don't, they don't even know what's going on. And so audiences have been feeling that, you know, that's the response that we, that we've been getting. So it really is about asking yourself, what is agency in what we assume, assume is the real world? Do you find that the audience from night to night is primed differently? Or like if there's, I keep thinking about when the first immersive pieces I saw in LA and it was one of those pieces that was mostly traversal. It was, um, uh, the day shall declare it, uh, Annie Saunders movement based piece. And, uh, it was fascinating because, you know, we were, there were no chairs. We were moving around this very small, this, this like abandoned garage space. And 
it was pretty clear to me that we could move where we wanted, but the audience kind of instinctively formed a U-shape. They formed a little proscenium of their own. And I, having gone to Signamore and a couple other things, I knew that I could, oh, I could break out, you know. And, and when I, once I broke out and, like, moved to the other side, then other people realized they could as well. And sometimes it takes someone who just knows, like, oh, no, no, we can, we can go. We can, we can cross over. Like, we're not going to get in trouble if we talk back. We're not going to get in trouble if we make a move. Uh, and then suddenly people really start taking advantage of it. Has, has, have you seen those kind of dynamics? Cause like, absolutely. Yeah. How's it been rolling? What's, what's it been like? Is um, night to night totally different or yeah. Yeah. Night to night is totally different and that's what makes it exciting. And, you know, we really want people to see the show multiple times and react multiple times because, you know, the, 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 the script by DG Watson, which is so incredibly dense and, and amazing the ride that he takes you on in, in the, in the play that if you only see it once, you might miss something. Right. And the audience, another audience will help you see the play in a different way. So it does make that night to night experience exciting, not just for the people on stage, but for the people who are watching it multiple times, because when you see it with a different, different audience, it becomes a different play based on the reactions that the audience and the actors have with one another, you know? And that's one of the things that I really loved when I was doing Stomp, because Stomp was very interactive. It was about the audience. And if the audience was rocking, you would have a completely different experience from a quiet audience, right? And so we had to to get used to that, you know? Mm. We had to realize and recognize that uh, night to night, it's going to be different. And as an actor, it just made it made me a better actor, and it made me and it helped me craft a show that was never boring. Like I was always looking forward to what was going to happen the next night. Mm-hmm. So we really put that ethos into Ascension. We really wanted each audience to have their own unique experience and that unique experience be dictated by the dynamic in the audience. And it's been like that, you know? There have been some audiences that have been really quiet because they don't know how much permission they have to actually interact, right? We've been so indoctrinated into not, into being a quote unquote good listener, right, that we're, afraid, even though you're prompt in the beginning of the play to talk back, or afraid to talk back, right, um, as an audience, you know. And there are some people who want to have a completely passive experience, um, but that's not what this show is. This show is an, an, an active experience, right? You will be asked to do some things. And then, you know, what I find is younger people who are used to screen interaction, who are used to, you know, writing comments, um, they're way more interactive than older folks. Mm. You know, the older people that come in aren't quite sure. So when the people on stage start talking to them, even if they talk first, they retreat. They're like really quiet. Yeah. Right. And they don't say anything. So yeah, Yeah, that social contract is so different generation to generation, you know, particularly over the past 40 years. Um, Totally. This is the second time Echo Theatre Company has done an interactive piece this year. 
there was underneath the freeway of freeways of Los Angeles earlier in the year. Two under the belt. Now, were there, were there any before, or were these the first two interactive experiments for the company? These were the first two titled interactive, right? Mm. I mean, there was we did a bunch on Zoom um, where we would respond to the comment section. Mm. But this is the first. These these two are the first, you know, real just jump into the deep end types of interactive performances. And it's something that the Echo really wanted to do because of the pandemic. You know, a lot of people feel like a lot of things stopped during the pandemic. A lot of things did stop during the pandemic, but theater never stopped. Theater um, all across the country was trying to figure out how to continue how to make things, how to keep people interested and keep people subscribed, not just to their channels, but also to the actual spaces, to the actual theaters. And I think, you know, before the pandemic, people were looking at live theater as being obsolete. And we were losing a lot of audiences to other things, right? And, you know, there was this big, like, 99C, oh, yeah. um, you know, thing that happened in Los Angeles and, you know, there was an equity thing that we were equity equity fights that we were going through as small theaters were fighting for their lives, right? But the pandemic hit, and I think everyone recognized that we need each other. We love being in dark spaces together, having an experience, you know. And when we got to come back to the theater, that's what everybody felt. And you know, I have friends who are still in New York on Broadway, and they're telling me that you know. People in rehearsals, they're breaking down and, and extremely emotional because they're back together. You know, they're yeah. looking out into the audience, and when audiences walk into the theater, they feel that magic and they realize what they missed. So I think the, you know this this interactive hybrid and live theater is this is a way we can continue theater even through you know our most challenging. I think one of the things that's one of the things I think it's really revealed about the role of theater in a society that has that is saturated with performing arts visual content in the form of movies and streaming services, right? Like if you want to see a performance that's been edited together, or you just want to watch a performance, like you can you have it all on demand all the time. You can find it legally or illegally, but that what the live theater element of it is is community and the the zoom stuff really showed i think some of the people who have the most successful zoom practices they lean very deeply into their community they lean they lean into creating a space for people to connect and that's a differentiator that small theaters have always had and i think maybe have kind of woken up to like and, and can maybe stop feeling jealous of movie theaters or netflix because that's yeah. something that Netflix, Netflix, as much as it's going to try, is never going to have that sense of community. And, yeah. you know, some movie theaters like little rep houses can pull it off. But that's uh, that's still, you know, a very different play from what a, a live theater has in terms of the community of performers, the community of artists, the community of patrons seeing each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess then the, the follow-up question would be, 
you know, it sounds like this is something the form of the Echo is gonna gonna keep playing with uh, as the years go on, right? Yeah, you know, I hope so. What it's been it's been interesting ascension because because this is something that isn't you know there isn't a lot of it and there aren't a lot of people trying to do this kind of theater the way we're doing it we've kind of had to teach people how to watch it and it's been challenging for you know the older theater goers to recognize that this is a way that you can enjoy live theater as well Mm. you know so being interactive and having something immersive and you know having screens as sets and being able to use film techniques in a live situation is new for a lot of people. So it's been, it's been, there, there is going to be a little bit of uh, a permission to get this type of theater in a shape where it becomes kind of normal. Right. So, I just think we need a lot more of it. I think we need to have a lot more people doing it. And, you know, kind of like I said earlier, this is a really good middle form of entertainment where you have enough seats to entertain enough people and use, you know, cinematic techniques and and live three-dimensional techniques and immersive techniques to make something new. And it could really make an impact if we lean into it as a theater community. You know, every actor I know who's in film and television, they all want to do theater, right? But it's challenging to do theater because it's very difficult to put all those pieces together and um, getting people in the house. And, you know, theater, unfortunately, has this connotation of being slow and boring and old, right? And... um, not a lot of people enjoy theater the same way, but I, I just think that there, there needs to be an upgrade to what we're doing in theater and recognizing that the technology is at a point right now where we can really do some large scale things for a little bit of money, right? We don't need millions of dollars of budget to make an enormous experience and landscape. I think what's going on with projection mapping, what's going on with augmented reality, what's going on with XR, extended reality, all can be used in a theater context to make the theater experience exponentially more uh, immersive and involved. I think we should lean into that. You're preaching to the choir. You're definitely preaching to the choir. On the best, uh, where can people find Ascension here in Los Angeles and for how much longer? Yes, Ascension is at the Atwater Village Theater on Casitas Avenue in Atwater. Um, it is going to be open to November 18th, but I heard we might get extended, so it might be open until the end of the month, uh, until November 29th. But right now we're on the books for November 18th. It's playing Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at the Atwater Theater, and you can get tickets at the echotheatercompany.com. Just hit Ascension. Fantastic. I encourage folks to check it out. I'm my best. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you. Really appreciate it. While there's no pick of the week this week, still coming up on the show, our talk with Scott Stein of CNET 
and with Tipitat Chenavasan of The Venture Fund. We've reached that part of the show where we like to check in with our friends from around the Immersiverse. This time out, we have, returning to the show, Scott Stein of CNET, and we're going to talk about uh, that which has been garnishing all of the hot takes of late, uh, <laughs> hot take-ified. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the, the news, so that means, yes, we're going to touch on Facebook's plans and meta, which you know we would have done last week, but I was on vacation. I, I took a hell of a time to take a vacation. I knew this was going to happen, but whatever. Scott, how's it going? <laughs> Hey, good, Noah. It's great to talk. Uh, yeah. Metaverse, 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 metaverse. Metaverse! Um, yeah. First off, I, I love the fact that like what Neil Stevenson came out and was like, oh, people keep asking me, uh, but I have nothing to do with this. Um, and I want to point out that if anyone wants yeah. to, uh, he was on episode 301 of this podcast. So if you want to hear, if you want to hear him answer the question directly before this all went down, I did that like three months ago. So just want to say, put it out there. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Poor, poor Neil Stevenson. Um, or <laughs> congratulations, Neil Stevenson. I don't know. It's, it, yeah, it's, you know, it's so weird how we keep pointing back to it. And I was just reflecting the other day that like, you know, the, the, the thing is that like that term now has existed outside of that book for longer than probably it was in the process of, of writing that book. Like, so I feel like, Oh yeah. Like, it's like the who dreamed whom like uh, and it's it's like at this point like it's it's just a thing that's floating out there things always start from somewhere but it's clearly it's also something else now that is not like that book's never going to have all the answers for us <laughs> well what's not, there's it's that not the mystical guide yeah well there's definitely that but there's also there's this there's this deep dark irony because you know just just thinking about snow crash alone one it was clearly written as a parody of american consumer culture um like it's it's obsessed with uh shopping malls going you know virtual just like the shopping malls always with you all the time which was satirical and supposed to be kind of nightmarish and as annalee newitz um the 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 author and uh the founding editor of io9 pointed out in a tweet recently um you know the, the metaverse was the vector for a neurolinguistic virus that like turned most a large chunk of humanity into like a bunch of gibbering fools, right? Like the metaverse, it was this idea that there was a neurolinguistic virus that like broke out online and then infected people's brains and and turned them all into zombies. <laughs> and like this, that's, this is that's this phase is two. Yeah, that's phase two. Also, it's also today like pointed out that the metaverse is an anagram for serve the meat. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm and having was, Rudy Rucker flashbacks. Yeah, and this was in reference to like Mark Zuckerberg's whole thing about sweet baby rays, because everyone was pointing out like there's sweet baby rays in there, which I'm just like, right. uh, like we're supposed to talk about that. Like that that's been set up for us to do. It's like very calculated. But then, yeah. then you take this extra level of like <laughs> serve the meat. <laughs> When's, when's Kang and Kodos going to come out? You know, They're... the endless ARG of our lives. Exactly. Like the clues continue to unfold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the, all the simulationists, maybe, maybe they need to, maybe they need to get scared and not excited. Wait a second. <laughs> yeah. It's been a lot. It's been, it's been a, a lot. lot. 
metaverse metaverse um matrix nfts are being sold which is just like way to miss the point <laughs> right buy your avatar in-, in the matrix what it's interesting to me because like it's so much of this we we all have takes on it right we all have such different deep um and spur of the moment takes and at the same time i keep remembering that so many people around the, the world have their own takes and also are familiar with these things so it's like you know mm. i think there's like I, I think to myself sometimes like how much is do I need to explain this to people or how much do people already feel like they, they actually kind of get it? Like I was getting my haircut today and like at the barbershop and they were like asking me about it, not even knowing that I was covering it. You know, mm. they were just, they, they were thinking about it and talking about it from like the whole ready player one vibe or NFTs or um, identity and skins. And like, it, that's interesting. I was like, yeah, I think there's the degree to which like, you know, it's being driven from a lot of different directions towards like this center. Well, that's, that's actually this barbershop talk. That's really interesting to me. Like how, I mean, you're out there with CNET, you know, you're, you're covering tech, but how much do you think this actually has, I guess for like us old grognards in the spaces, you know, tech was always something that was a vertical over on the right or left like it wasn't even it wasn't even a section of the newspaper right like yeah. it was a subsection of business maybe sometimes a subsection of the arts didn't have its own standalone in the past 20 years not only has it become you know its own complete media vertical it's now the center of all of our lives yeah and i think that that's exactly what makes it so terrifying and fascinating um and i think it's that we've had this this has been like that for like i feel like a decade or or more in this kind of like tech in, in enveloped uh world that we're in where it's part of the news it's part of politics and 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 lifestyle and just kind of seems to be everywhere um and I, I think what's interesting is like, we, there's been a lot of things this week where people have been like, well, the metaverse already exists. It's in, it's in this, it's in games, it's in Minecraft. It's in, um, I've seen it before. I've done it before. And like, and I think that's interesting because like that it's kind of more like a yes. And to me, like, I feel like there should be a lot of resonances going on that are happening everywhere. And this is like the, it seems like a unified field theory of like, um, of like a lot of different things or or they're trying to do that. Mm. Like that, that seems like what, like the, the core of what, what is going on with metaverse talk. It's like these lots of different pieces. How are we going to have them all actually like be together Um, versus like lots of separate, weird, non-talking to each other platforms. I mean, from a definitional standpoint, that's, that's almost feels like definitely like what it, what it has to be. And I, I think there's some sense of being, you know, of it being freeing, particularly the idea of like, oh, I, I mean, there's the interoperability principle, right? You know, which like an open, open web folks are always all about, but also this idea just of like, hey, I, I bought this thing or I, I made this thing. I should be able to take it with me everywhere I go. I don't want to have to like, I don't have to like reinvent the wheel every time a new platform pops up or every time a new, a new space inside the platform comes up. 
that's what becomes so interesting because I feel like the ecosystems of this are very much like a, a sort of a, a TBD. And if you think mm-hmm. like about, well, like how all tech plays out where you have these walled gardens and then some things open up and other things don't. And then you have, um, you know, court cases or you have like Epic versus Apple or like whatever it is, um, you know, streaming services disappearing and reappearing from boxes or whatever. There's a lot of different pieces at play. And I feel like this all kind of will end up happening here too. Like Facebook, I was thinking about that. They want to have a 3D repository of objects and a lot of places are trying to build 3D repository mm. of objects or own uh, repositories of these things. And then um, Andrew Bosworth and Meta, Facebook, you know, who was talking, like there was a metaphor when he was talking to uh, a bunch of us in a briefing that was talking about kind of like uh, digital goods and, and crossing like state lines or, you know, like countries. And it, it was kind of weird because there, there was a sensation where you're saying like most stuff comes with you, but sometimes things may not. Um, and that like, what, so what is that? You know, like what, tell me more about like what can't come with me and what can, because that's the question. Like, will, like you said, um, in this future world where you have digital goods, are they coming with you from like, all these different places to all the other places. Like right now it doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think anyone wants their digital content moving to somebody else's place, whether it's a movie or uh, a character or whatever. And this, it kind of, it is this, this universe assumes that we'll have those abilities, but boy, that's not played out very easily anywhere. Yeah. Like, I mean, there is that there is that idea. I guess what it boils down to, in terms of what is the metaverse in its ideal form, setting aside all of the you know <laughs> turning everyone into gibbering zombies uh, part, uh, just the idea that you can move around the virtual universe with the, you and your stuff with the ease that you can move around the real universe, right? Like. Yeah. I can just if if I if I own a song like it used to be, hey, I got this song on cassette and I can play it in any cassette player, you know, in my car, at my friend's house, in my Walkman, that's my song. You know, all right, I, I own this copy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like my shirt. My shirt goes with me everywhere I go. <laughs> I don't know why I chose shirt. I I you you had a chance to talk. You mentioned that just now with some of the folks at uh, the newly rechristened Meta. Uh, and I've been mm-hmm. observing, they've made a couple of moves as a company in the past few days, even when we're recording this. Like one, they've announced that they're uh, shutting down their facial recognition program where they've collected like a billion faces and they're going to like, I don't know if they announced that they're going to burn that archive, uh, which is, which is, I think what would, be needed for it to be a real trust like a public like these are the servers and now we light them on fire in front of everyone um but they've announced that they're abandoning that uh, giving up that whole process uh and then just today and this this on one level seems minor and i know there's all kinds of business reasons for it but like instagram just announced they're going to allow twitter cards of instagram which was like an anti-competitive thing they did, I don't know what, six years ago or something, right? Which is why like you can't see mm-hmm. Instagram pictures on Twitter, but you can see all the TikToks you want. Um, and clearly it's motivated by, you know, TikTok 
eating their lunch, ByteDance just like destroying them in in social. But there's also there's something here. There's a, that, that's a shift in stance uh, that's going hand in hand with like all of the acquisition they're doing. Like they just bought Supernatural and everything. What's your read on is is this actually more than just changing the name to try and throw everybody off the scent? Everybody mean the regulators <laughs> off the scent of Facebook, or are they? Is there some actual commitment to change? I don't know, and that, you know it's interesting when I when I see that and the and also the Facebook login stance that there's um, it seems like that very much they're going to move away from that and that you'll be able to use your own accounts from all indications that Bosworth had mentioned. And um, so that's, this sounds like it's all opening up and that they're, you know, getting rid of the stuff that's bad or making a statement to get rid of the stuff that's bad. I also wonder if it's like the, the on a, on a meta existential sense, like the wall, like how far away are the walls in the walled garden? You know, it's like, when have you really escaped the maze? Like uh, maybe it's an app or is it a family of apps or is it a larger universe? Do they want you to kind of be under this larger dome and want everything to, to, to be comfortably existing in, in this collection of things? Um, you know, it's like the way you think about any ecosystem like iOS or, you know, Google's Google play, uh, you know, Google services. Um, I think of it a little bit like that, where like maybe the, the the perimeter is moving outwards where it's like um you, you know it's not just like oh it's about using this particular app but they're trying to get people it, they're never going to get people to like build um any sort of like happy existence in this collection of products and things unless they open it up a lot more um so that you feel like you can actually do stuff and it's not like blocked off um so i feel like it's probably part of that mm. I mean, I don't know. There's been a lot of talk from them about either, I don't know, that there are years to figure this stuff out, which I don't think there are. <laughs> and, and, but also like that there, there was there were conversation about like trying to figure this out before it gets too big, yet you have at the same time these massive platforms that are going to be part of it, um, theirs and others. And I, think there was a suggestion when I talked to um, Vishal Shah, um, who's the head of metaverse for meta. So it's like the, the metaverse. That's meta, so meta, meta, meta that meta has a head of metaverse. I'm just going to meditate <laughs> on that. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, it's like that, that was where metaverse showed up when Facebook formed the metaverse group <laughs> earlier in the right. year. But that was before the name changed to meta. So it is like the meta and I was even asking that to Shah. I was like, so what is it that you, are you guys the metaverse? You know, like, is this, is this the group that's the metaverse? Am I here? Is there another group? Like it does become harder to understand when the company is named meta. Um, but going back to what he was saying, what was I saying? I basically was talking about, sorry no, about that. I, <laughs> I, I lose track of it all myself, right? Like, but. But going, but going back oh, to what they were saying yeah. in the metaverse group, yeah. But he was, yeah, I remember what it was. I remember, yeah. He was talking about um, figuring out some things that might carry over and some things that may not from the large scale platforms. But then like, what does that mean? You know, like, are they going to say like, 
are they going to try to sort of start anew and say like you can't bring all that stuff over that may be problematic you got to start over with just a couple of things um it's really hard to understand how they'll do yeah. that and generally they, they've just been sort of saying well that's why we're asking the questions and it's like okay well um so are we we're asking questions so i think that um yeah, there are a lot yeah. of questions. But I think that what's interesting to me is at the same time, people are like, oh, what what the hell's going on here? Like, not only have they been discussing this for like a long time, but like a lot of companies have been discussing this. So it's like this sense to me that they're all converging and like companies are like clearly seeming to want to tip their hands faster or get there faster. Like there's one underlying thing I feel like, which is that like, Facebook wants these magic smart glasses that just aren't here. And in the meantime, they have to like kind of claim some ground or try to work on that in advance of what could be a wait. So it's kind of like a, you kind of like hold the fort a little Mm. bit. And then the question is how many other people can get there? It's like a weird race where like nobody's able to like get to the thing yet. Um, and and no one's and, really proven that, that people really want those magic smart glasses, right? Yeah, that too. Right? And and I and I don't say that as someone's like, I'm I'm always a little more skeptical about AR than I am about VR, just because I don't know. I I I <laughs> I don't see the use cases without incredibly massive amounts of processing power which I just don't see anyone wanting to put, you know, either have like a disc man at their hip, which was Magic Leap's way of going, which, I, which you know, is fine, right? Like that's, that's not too bad. The other option is to have some, the equivalent of like a hot iron on your face. Um, but like, like until you can just fully VTube the world, right? Like I just don't see the point of AR glasses being your default, Right? Like, like, what's it going to do? Like, Google Glass never made sense to me, and uh, yeah, I feel like I feel a little vindicated, you know, that I didn't never got excited about those. Yeah, well, it's like that. That is definitely like the the strategy here. Like, a lot of people reading this, I feel like, are seeing the um, Second Life thing mm. and the and the you know game community, Minecraft, and all that stuff. Yeah, that's there. I think this is more like a move where they're trying to emphasize like, oh, it's not about, it's not just about the glasses. It's not just about the headset. It kind of goes to your point. Like it's, it's an inevitable acknowledgement. They keep talking about like, uh, John Carmack was talking about this, that like he he made a comment and afterwards in, in his talk at the developer thing about how all those users on 2d platforms, like we've got to go to them. They, we can't expect them to come to us. Mm. And, I feel like there's been this acknowledgement that like, look, we just went, I also wonder about two years in the pandemic. The reality is most people weren't using VR headsets and like virtual already means something to people. And so I think this is the point where it's like, you got to move forward with that realization and embrace that. Otherwise trying to jam people into this, path like you said they may not even want to be going there and then meanwhile they've got to figure out what all this other stuff is so i think that's the big change like to me that the metaverse just like a label for like acknowledging that it's got to be this like cross device thingy this spectrum 
But I wonder too, like I agree with you about AR. I felt for a while that like, I've been kind of commenting on this in the past few days. VR has a very particular form. We knew what it was. It has been refined. I believe from reading people who know more than me about AR, from thinking about what AR means, it's a more amorphous idea. It's something that comes, it's not about transporting. It's like super connecting, like your sensory augmentation, you connecting to all things in, you know, and augmenting yourself, kind of a cyborg thing. And then I feel like that goes a lot of places and glasses really to me only represent one dimension of that thought. And I don't even know if the final form of what that idea is has been conceived. I feel like we're kind of working through it, but it's like, it are smart glasses the final form? And isn't it anyhow all the things you'd be wearing on you or using that are kind of pinging, buzzing, uh, enhancing, already doing that with the stuff you have now? Is that augmented reality? Like, this is the philosophical thought I've been thinking. Yeah. Like, it's, it, you know, it's like, I agree with you. It's not kind of the, the visual part is becoming like the least interesting thing to me as I think about AR. Um, because it gets really invasive. And I think that not just the, not just the cameras, but the visual field that is going to have to be resolved and nobody has really begun to figure that out. Scott, I'm going to, I'm going to hold this at this point. Although I'm also, can you stick around for a couple more minutes? Cause I, I want to, I want to get into this philosophical with you. So definitely. Okay. Yeah. So we'll drop that in the bonus. Uh, this this went a little this went a little longer than I expected. But I'm gonna leave it all in because uh, it's good stuff. Scott Stein, uh, when people want to find you out in the vast fields of the metaverse, where I've seen them harvest. No, sorry, that's the Matrix. Uh, when people want to see you out, find you out in the metaverse, uh, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jet Scott. Um, you can also find me at uh, CNET, um, where I write about these things. And when I pop on a podcast like these and ones at CNET and, and elsewhere. Excellent. Scott, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you, Noah. And indeed we'll drop the rest of my conversation with Scott, which if memory serves goes on for like another 25 minutes, maybe longer. This episode's already really long. <laughs> uh, we'll drop that into the bonus feed. That bonus feed is accessible by our Patreon backers. You can find that at www.patreon.com slash no proscenium. And when I say that is how I live my life and makes it possible for me to do this, um, still, I don't, I do not have a, a store of crypto. I, I, I'm not selling NFTs and I haven't hit the lottery. Uh, on the other hand, if anyone wants to give me some crypto NFTs or winning lottery, lottery trick tickets, I'm not even going to edit that. Uh, you're free to do so. Uh, but, uh, the easier way to do it is just go to www.nopersinium.com, drop two or $5 into the bucket there. Uh, or, you know, uh, drop, uh, you know, 24 bucks or 50, uh, 60 bucks for the year and, uh, get access to all the bonus parts of what we do. Um, uh, like to do it that way better than locking this entire show behind a paywall, uh, which would, I don't want to do that. <laughs> don't make me do that. All right, coming up, uh, we got this conversation with Tipitat. Also, going to be a long one. Uh, not dropping uh, that into the bonus feed because uh, 
uh, we went for like, we went for a while and I, I looked up 20 minutes in and thought we had gone for five. It's going to be one of those. So, uh, grab yourself another cup of coffee, uh, coffee again, not going to edit it holding mine right now and, uh, get ready for, uh, the rest of this extra special episode, episode 317. We're back in it. Long form, five-star runtime. Joining us now is Tipitat Chenavasan of the VR Fund. Uh, and this is really special in a couple of ways. Uh, one, uh, because uh, we follow Tipitat on Twitter and have been, uh, you know, love watching him, watching the trends, and and we pick up on a lot of stuff because of what, what he's tweeting about. Uh, but also, we haven't really had anyone from the venture capitalist world here on the show, and I'm so looking forward to getting your perspective on VR and metaverse and all of this, because like Hansel, it's so hot right now. Um, why, why do I keep on making Zoolander jokes? Only five people remember that movie. Uh, the tip of that, for those who don't know, could you kind of break down uh, what the VR fund is and sort of some of the companies that you've uh, been involved with? Sure. The Venture Reality Fund is a typical tech VC that's based in Silicon Valley, and we invest in early stage virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and metaverse startups. We, our first fund was a $45 million fund. We invested over 40 companies, including some of the most successful VR, AR, um, and metaverse startups, including companies like the makers of Job Simulator that was acquired by Google. They're called Alchemy Labs. And then the makers of uh, Beat Saber, the most successful virtual reality game that was acquired by Meta. And also uh, Rec Room, which is one of the kind of new proto metaverses, uh, and it was recently valued at over a uh, $1 billion valuation. Um, and, but I, I will say, too, it sounds like we invest mostly in gaming and entertainment, but actually, no, the majority of our investments have actually been in the enterprise place. And we've invested in just as many healthcare companies um, and also invest a lot in like training and other kind of fundamental technology companies that help enable uh, the virtual reality, augmented reality, and metaverse space. Before I, I, I ask you about sort of like the, the health of the, the VC environment for VR and, and metaverse, uh, I want to take a moment to talk about uh, the medical and, and sort of the BTB. Obviously, for those who watch the tech world, enterprise and sort of infrastructure uh, are are the are the bread and butter they're the backbone of those industries even even game companies like have divisions that make stuff for the department of defense like this this is known how how big is that part of the space and and can any of the entertainment stuff like you know the cultural stuff exist without that being a real healthy part of of the universe yeah, no, that's a really good question. And what I think is interesting is, honestly, it's why VR was created, right? Like, it was originally developed by the uh, Department of Defense and, you know, funded throughout the years as a way of creating stuff like, um, you know, fighter pilot simulations, right? And that's like the 
very beginnings of what the VR movement was. And what's really interesting about that is like even today, right? One of the biggest use cases is training for VR. And, you know, we talk about companies like Walmart work with VR companies, uh, VR training companies like Striver, and they're training over millions uh, of employees um, to do different tasks from, you know, task orient like skill hard skill oriented tasks to soft skills training and so we're seeing a lot of use cases here now where it's doctors being trained surgeons being trained nurses being trained on the newest covid techniques but what's really interesting too is we're seeing it go beyond just the training and actually doing the work um, in this virtual or augmented reality way and so we're seeing stuff like surgical navigation that could potentially eliminate surgical errors or we're seeing re remote collaborations and you know when people are talking to me asking me okay well how far along are, are these technologies are they actually being deployed in, in real work situations real life situations and i always point to one of our portfolio companies apprentice and they are a remote collaboration solution for pharmaceutical laboratories and they help fast track mm. the COVID vaccines. And so AR technologies are being used to combat some of the world's biggest problems today. It's what not is, something that we're talking about you know, years from now. Yeah. Um, it's already been in use and already showing bene huge benefits. What are, what are the affordances of the technology that folks just in, in these fields, just hopping on a Zoom call or collaborating via Slack or Teams um, don't get? Sure. I think a lot of it is, you know, again, what we have with 2D communication, already great. But when it comes down to collaboration and understanding, you know, especially when it's a lot more data that needs to be transferred or understood, then you have to go kind of beyond what's possible with Zoom and with current solutions. And so that idea of not just communication, but the actual collaboration, and especially mm -hmm. when it's complex tasks that need, um, you know, very sophisticated equipment that have to be kind of coordinated with. Um, you know, I, I think what we're seeing too is because of the shutdown, right? Like specifically what happened was uh, a lot of times the they couldn't physically staff up as many people as possible. So they needed to have these experts kind of walk their, um, you know, teammates through these complicated things because they couldn't be there on site. I've been following... VR, AR, this whole world. I mean, aside from just like casually following it since the 90s, I've been following as a reporter for about the past 10 years. And I I note that starting like, you know, there was that big burst of enthusiasm when VR kind of came back into uh, the mix circa 2011, 2012, around there. I'm trying to, I can never remember the exact Sundance where things started to like kick off. Um, and there was that massive influx of money into that space. And then the AR, you know, cash started kind of feeling it was flowing afterwards, at least for what we were seeing pushing towards the consumer side. And then we hit that trough of despair um, when you know, the the three off headsets didn't quite go the way that everyone thought they were going to go. Google Glass didn't become a thing. Um, from your point of view, uh, and, I, and I know that, you know, the metaverse stuff has a lot to do with it, but even when it comes to like the stuff that's currently deployed in the consumer space, where where do you think the the valley and the money is at in terms of its attitude towards this realm are they 
getting excited again? Are they seeing potential again? Or are they a little more focused on the the what if maybe side of of this realm? They are absolutely getting excited again, or I should say we are absolutely getting excited <laughs> again. I think you know, what's interesting when we think about this is, of course, like anything gets hype, then it becomes overhyped. And because you're overhyped, then the only thing that can happen next is fallout. And then what happens is in the meantime, like the real use cases start catching up. We start to see real progress and then the world catches up and there's a kind of second wave. And that's what's happening now. But what's really interesting too is if we think about it, at least from the business side, what really launched everything, like what really launched a lot of investor interest was the moves that Meta, well, Facebook at the time was making. And it was when Facebook acquired Oculus. That's when, you know, a lot of uh, VC money was like, okay, if Facebook is getting behind this, this is going to be really big. Let's see what happens. And if we think about it, you know, back then it was like a two to $3 billion acquisition of Oculus. And that's really what started that first generation hype cycle, right? Mm-hmm. And now what we're seeing is, you know, Facebook making even bigger moves saying, hey, we're spending over $10 billion a year to, cry, to create this metaverse that's going to be, you know, that's using the VR and AR technologies that we've been working on for the past, you know, six plus years. And what's really interesting about that is, you know, now... Uh, and again, it's not just Facebook or I'm sorry, Meta, but, but it's not just Meta, but they are definitely leading a lot of this conversation and bringing it a lot to the forefront or to the mainstream. But then we'll also see things like, of course, you know, Roblox and um, of course, Epic Games and Fortnite. And just this idea of that, you know, more people are living in virtual worlds and that these behaviors that we're seeing in terms of, you know, not well, one of gaming becoming the biggest kind of entertainment leisure activity that we now do as a as a population. And then two, as this idea of, you know, people that are growing up living online, growing up in these virtual worlds, uh, you know, spending more time in these virtual worlds than they would at the mall, right? Now, what's the internet going to look like for them? What should it look like for them, right? And that, that's where this idea of uh, metaverse now becomes so much more possible and tangible. And again, I, I don't think it's about necessarily saying, hey, we're making something brand new. Uh, but I think a lot of it is this idea of taking these things that we've been thinking about for decades, but now making it mainstream and making it beneficial for all of humanity. That that last bit, I think, is like the the, the tricky part, right? Because we've seen we've seen a lot of the good the internet has done in terms of connecting us all up, but we've also seen so much of the I guess how easy it is to be a bad faith actor in the internet uh, and, and how much that can kind of undermine people's trust in platforms, trust in each other. Um, Other folks are like, you know, super gullible and don't believe anything, but uh, do you see, do you see there being barriers when it comes to, you know, this web 3.0 or you know, metaversal existence um, for, for folks kind of like, you know, being wary and, and, and not willing to, to, to trust because of, because of the, the downsides of what's happened before. Sure. You know, I, I think part of it is human nature and it's hard to, you know, combat human nature, um, especially when, you know, there are always going to be evil actors on any kind of technology or any kind of platform, right? But I think the interesting thing is to try to say, hey, can we improve the incentives or 
disincentivize bad behavior and encourage positive behavior. And I would argue one of the biggest problems that we've had of you know with the two D internet. Uh, you know, the internet that we know today and social networks that we know today is that it's really media driven and, and mass media driven where the ma- where the monetization model mm-hmm. is ad driven. And it's all about this like attention economy of how many you know clicks can we drive to this? And, oh, it needs to be more incendiary to drive more clicks because that means more money. Right. Right. What I think is really interesting and powerful is, you know, this idea of the metaverse offering authentic digital experiences so that we can create a more experience-driven economy where now what we're selling creators are, are not just creating media, but they're creating digital items, digital goods, digital experiences like games or digital storytelling like immersive theater that can scale that we can then sell and monetize directly to consumers. And we don't have to have this kind of toxic ad-driven, you know, click-baity kind of ecosystem. Do you get the sense that Meta or some of your colleagues in in the Valley VC world, I'm thinking like, you know, Andreessen Horwitz, et cetera, that, that they see an advantage in pivoting towards the experience economy, right? That that next step beyond services, as Joe Pine lays out and in, in, in Joe Pine and uh, Gilmore lay out in their book. Um, the experience economy, which has been around for like, you know, ever. Do you see them embracing that? Because it does feel like, you know, the the ad version of everything has, has it, it's easy money. It's, it's so easy to just, you know, gate people's feeds, ask people to boost, ask people to pay to be heard, which is what the Facebook business model wound up becoming. Like mm-hmm. I remember... I remember that shift in like 2008, 2009, when suddenly I was like, oh, you know, if you want your friends to actually see this, you, you could boost your post. And and suddenly we were no longer in this kind of meritocracy uh, of communication, but it was it was all pay to play and everything that's done to it. Do you, do you think that they can, that they, they've got that vision in them or they even have, I guess, the fortitude to, to make it to experience? Well, I think what's interesting is, you know, definitely, you know, when they talk about, you know, this rise of the creator economy, if we fundamentally think about what is the creator economy, it just means that people are making a living making content for the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what's really interesting about that is like, yeah, when we see Facebook and we see Apple and you're like, okay, well, you know, Facebook has to have this, you know, ad-driven revenue model. But when we look at Apple and they're like, oh, well, they own the app store and they get 20% or I mean 30% of everything that's sold on the app store. So they have an awesome revenue model, right? Like that's the revenue model to get, right? So then you could see like Facebook thinking, okay, well, for the next version of the internet or the next version of computing, you know, we don't want to be just the Facebook, right? Like we want to own the hardware platform and we want to own the app store so that we might not have to have this, you know, be tethered, beholden to this advertising revenue model, right? Like we could have more of a model like Apple does in today's like uh, mobile ecosystem. And so that's what I think, you know, the the first bet with, you know, Oculus was to say, hey, can we try to own the whole platform, the product, the ecosystem, right? Now, if we apply that to the metaverse and say, okay, yeah, now they're getting a cut of you know all the digital goods being sold, and again saying like, okay, that's a potentially better business model than saying, hey, we have to just 
rely on advertisers to kind of pay us to, to monetize all of the time that's being spent on our platform, I, I think that's very promising. Now, I, it is interesting. I, I feel like, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, the creator economy and trying to figure out, like, what does this really mean? But, you know, I think if we look further into, like, just this idea of democratizing, uh, you know, being part of the digital economy, letting more people benefit from the uh, being, you know, creating content on the internet and then thinking about, oh, wait, what that means for creating content on the metaverse and Facebook already making moves and saying, hey, you know, we're creating a creator fund. We're really embracing this and we're really exploring that. I don't know. You know, I don't think it's necessarily everyone has all the answers, but we can definitely see people are prodding and pushing and trying to think of new ways. I'm going to pivot us here a little bit, something I, I flagged before we started talking. Sure. Um, you know that our focus uh, at NoPro is often on like the arts entertainment uh, and side and, and our probably our biggest interest when it comes to the XR is is the crossover between XR experiences and, and live performance. And I'm wondering, is is that something that you're watching too? Or are you seeing any any buzz about that in the circles you're running in? Or is this still... Uh, hyper niche for a bunch of particular <laughs> nerds who hang out in spaces like VR chat and rec room. No, you know, I, I think like, that's the thing, right? Like it starts out hyper niche, but if it's repeatable and scalable, that's when the VCs really get excited. Now the problem is how scalable is it? And we haven't really seen anything become super scalable yet, but we're definitely paying attention to it. I mean, I think a lot of, at least, you know, the VCs that I talk to that are like looking at these, uh, you know, Frontier Tech or New Tech, we we're personally love these things and are interested in, and always kind of thinking about. Okay, are there new ways to bring to make this even broader? And I think you know, definitely looking at virtual reality, augmented reality as ways of you know scaling this out and doing things like looking at AI and understanding. Okay, is there a way where maybe you know you train it live actors, but then you train the AI based off of like you know, months of shows and interactions and then have some way of like having an AI kind of take over for some of that, I mean, could be the way to go. So it'd be like, you know, when you're off Broadway and you're training the AI and then when you're ready to go, your AI is good enough, then you can, you know, make it happen. Like, again, it's well, in, still pretty in, far off, but but I think there could be those that pathway to having that. Well, in, in that version of reality, the one thing I gotta admit, the one thing that always drives me up the wall about about the we'll, we'll, we'll make some virtual beings, we'll we'll mm-hmm. we'll train up some AIs and, and we'll do it. And even though I'll get excited about something like you know Lucy, right? Because you've got you've got um, you've got Fable uh, Studio has made some really interesting virtual beings uh, over the past few years, and they do start with that base of of a of writers and a performance. Can these things coexist with live performance, like or, or live virtual performance? Like, would would the model that could emerge be something along the lines of, well, if you want, you know, the AI version, it's this much, but if you want to get a live performer, you can you can book one in, and it and it you know it comes at a premium, because something that I've always seen as as a as a good is that, you know, we've got a lot of, we do have a lot of actors and performers, you know, a lot of really great people uh, who never quite make it in the system that exists right now because, you know, you only need so many Tom Cruises. You only need so many Brad Pitts. Um, and 
and yet there's a lot of talent that's untapped. Um, so yeah, can can these things coexist? Uh, could that be something, or would or do you think that the it just doesn't pencil out? No, I absolutely think it can exist. Um, well, you know, I, I, or I think another way to do it or think about it is just to say, like, at least at a fundamental level, right? Like virtual reality, like what we're seeing already with people doing these like immersive interactive plays in a rec room or in a VR chat, right? It's like, yeah, there can be actors doing performances for people and, you know, they could pay. Like, it, you know, it doesn't have to be venture scalable, so to speak, but there can be these things of like a virtual dinner theater or virtual theater groups like absolutely they should be able to exist and they could exist today right without any kind of ai and just saying hey are there people that are willing to pay for a performance absolutely i think so right oh yeah yeah i think i think some of the problem with a few of the platforms is that it's not that easy to find a way to play like i always think Mm -hmm. of like vr chat you know which is a popular platform for people to build in just has almost like an opaque (laughs) (laughs) Onboarding <laughs> UI system, so it's like really hard. Yeah, like even if you wanted to buy a ticket to some of these shows, like the the number of hoops you have to go into, uh, go through is uh, a little exhausting. Uh, and I'm someone who like knows that that's the bargain. But I love like I mean, again, this was you know, years ago, even now. But there was like a high school theater group that did a production of The Princess Bride in Rec Room, and they built all of the props and the sets like inside the game and. They like, you know, it was free, but they had sold out capacity for all of their shows. And you're just like, that's great. Like, there should definitely be more stuff like that. And yeah, I I think once we start seeing more people build those things, I think more people will start being part of those things. And, you know, another way to think about it is um, Adventure Labs, right? Like, they're, they're doing a great job with these kind of like escape room gameplay kind of things that are hosted and this idea of like okay well maybe it's not a one-to-one actor thing but one actor being many characters right like there could be something there to make that make sense or even just this idea of you know we think about like dungeons and dragons and it's like okay well what if you're playing a you know a vr mmorpg but the you know the level is designed by a dungeon master and he or she narrates the experience and maybe controls characters right like I think there can be so many ways that we haven't even explored yet, but um, I think the technology to build these things are getting easier and easier now, right? And, and like you say, of course, there's still hoops and hurdles to do, but I think once, at, at least it's never been easier to build these things and test them out and see if there's an audience without having to like, you know, amass a ton of capital to try these ideas, right? And, and you mentioned D&D, and I, I, I often think about the tabletop role-playing game like model and even business model of, you know, adventure books, what we call splat books, which have all of like the different characters and and, and stats, these modules, and that all of those things could take the form of digital assets. So it's things that could be sold to people who then go play with them. There, you know, there is like a professional class of, you know, game masters. <laughs> like that's a thing now. Oh, yeah. uh, all that stuff is, is, emerged in in sort of this D renaissance we're having and so there there's definitely viable models there and some of them some of them make a nice little living uh, yeah. uh you know doing what they do uh, or at least supplementing uh their living doing what they do i think too like you know if we look at like larping and renaissance fairs you know and, and, and like all these things kind of combining it this idea of like embodied fantasy play but then having it directed right it's like what i love too is this idea of like you know in in VR and AR, you could do more fantastical things, right? Like there shouldn't be a production of 
the Matrix or Alien or Top Gun, and it would feel so amazing, right? Like more so than any like staged production could do, uh, because you could take the audience anywhere and you could see effects and it, it would just be fantastic, right? Oh, I just think about, you know, we're starting to see some adaptation happen of, you know, older games. Like people are reacting very well to the Resident Evil 4 adaptation. And I'm I'm in the middle of playing a game called Inscription, um, which is uh it's a it's like a ostensibly a card game, but then at a certain point you find out that it's also kind of like you're in an escape room while you're playing a card game. And the second I started playing it, I was like, oh my God, this would be amazing in VR and extra creepy in VR. Like I could see how this, this would be kind of, and then it goes in all kinds of other weird ways. So I don't, I don't actually know over the long arc if that game would work well in that form. Um, well, everyone, everyone who listens to the show is going to hear a lot more about that soon enough. But um, yeah, there's, there's just, it feels like there's a lot of things that, that kind of ways people get their hustle on in, in the broader creative economy that maybe haven't been fully tapped into the, the metaversal side of things. I, I guess closing on, on, on that note, um, you know, how there is so much of the creative economy is happening on these virtual platforms, you know, how much is going on, you know, Roblox is, is something I think a lot of people who don't have kids don't know about and how big of a deal it is. Uh, Rec Room uh, has you know, a similar, um, you know, effect going on. Uh, how, what's, what's your sense of, you know, how far we are until this is kind of mainstreamed? Is it, is it part of the generational turn because of who's growing up with this stuff right now, or are we on a much shorter time scale? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting too. Like it depends on your definition of mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. Like what I find so interesting is, you know, you look at Roblox and you think about how many people are playing Roblox, uh, like Roblox or playing Fortnite. And it's just like, okay, remember when we thought like, wow, was it like, World of Warcraft was a huge thing. It was like, you know, popular zeitgeist. It was like 2010 or I think it launched in like 2006, but like at its peak in 2010, it was about 12 million MAU, right? Mm -hmm. Roblox has... 202 MAU. My God. Right? So so you're like, is Roblox mainstream? Well, just because you're not playing it <laughs> doesn't mean it's not. I'm like, dang. You know, like, it, yeah. It's mainstream. And then you're talking about, okay, well, what what about the, the creator economy in Roblox? Well, they paid out $250 million to UGC developers last year, right? A top developer in Roblox can earn $2 million a year. Stories of you know people paying off their parents' mortgages or their college tuition. Yeah, you know, there's... About three hundred fifty thousand, uh, yeah, three hundred fifty thousand developers in Roblox right now, and so, you know, is it mainstream? I, I, I mean, yeah, by some certain you know estimates, like I would consider that fairly mainstream. But what's interesting is it's growing. And what about the people that grow up making Roblox? Like, what are they going to do? Like, yeah, you know, I think about this too. Like, you know, when I grew up, it was you know when making flash games was cool right and we would make these games and we put them and animations put them on new grounds and you know we couldn't really monetize very smartly but you know it was just this, it was exciting it was just something fun to do and then a lot of those people grew up to become professional game developers and game creators right and it's like and now there's probably i don't know 10 to 100x of the amount of people that are now growing up in roblox making games in roblox and 
how are they going to think about things? How are they going to grow up, right? And, and will they be game creators? And I, like, absolutely, right? So I think that's interesting. But you know, what I think is really interesting, and this is where VR really makes a big impact, right? Is that like, I, I, honestly, I think right now, what's blocking a lot of people from creating stuff in Roblox is kind of what's blocking a lot of people from making stuff in typical 3D games right now. It's the interface is still like CAD and still mm. obtuse and still yeah. hard to use for a lot of people. But you think about in VR and AR, the one thing that we've learned is that creating in VR and AR is so much more easier when you're actually using VR and AR, right? Like creating 3D, sorry, in VR is... Yeah a joy and it's fun and it's like playing with Legos or, you know, sculpting with clay and it's something that a kindergartner can do. Right. So it removes that barrier um, and it lets anyone become a 3d creator um, almost inherently. And so I, I think that's when we're really going to see an explosion is when we have more adoption of this. And and it, it could also be one of the drivers of adoption where you're like, okay, well I want to make something for my kids to play in Roblox. I want to design this level and Oh my gosh, if I get a VR kit, I could do it in, half the time or yeah or a tenth of the time right yeah yeah no and 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 the fact that it is actually a joy like i can't draw to save my life i wish i could if i could i'd be a comic book artist (laughs) uh like seriously uh but you know busting open you know a quill or medium or you know any of the any of these tools and uh tilt brush and just making weird little things and filling in 3d bubbles and just being, Oh my God, you know, I'm an artist. We, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's joyous. It's absolutely yeah. joyous. And especially too, when we talk about, Oh, remixing content. And, you know, I think this is something that, that, mm. uh, you know, VR chat does very well. It's like, okay, well, we're going to take a game model of one of our favorite, you know, game characters or anime characters, put on that suit and then act out a scene. And it's like, Oh my gosh, like you're creating animation. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's, there's some, there's some crazy like tribute worlds that have been made inside VR chat. Like I, I won't, I won't name them cause I'm always worried that like the IP holders are going to be like, well, they did what, you know? Um, but there's, there's some really, there, there's some stuff in there that's, that's kind of blows my mind. And there are people who are making original IP work in there who are then pivoting and, and thinking about how can they get it off that platform, like take mm-hmm. the work that they've done yeah. and, and, and build it exterior. Like I think of the folks who did, um, who did the devouring, uh, which won rain dance last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they, they've started their own, they've started a game company based on this one project. Well, not the justice one, but like, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's a, that's in their toolkit that yep. they have. So. Yeah. I think that's a very great model though. When you think about, okay, well you have an idea, you want to build it. Like it's so much easier to like rapid prototype to test out your idea with an engaged audience if you build it in a rec room or in a VR chat, right? And yeah. then okay, once it's working, once it feels good, then yeah, you could talk about okay, rebuilding it for a, another, you know, the general uh, ecosystem. Yeah. To be that, this was fantastic. I got to cut us off, unfortunately. But uh, if we invite you back on at some point, will, will you show back up again? Absolutely. No, this has been an honor. I, I listened to the No Pro uh, podcast and you know, I've been following you guys. And I, I love, you know, that you guys are shining a light on some very, you know, amazing things and amazing creators. And I love seeing the creativity of the immersive economy and thinking about, you know, how it grows and evolves over time or, or, or what I think about daily. So uh, thank you for the work that you guys do. And I'm glad to be a part of this.
Um, uh, and I'm, I'm so glad, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you said, you said yes. Cause, uh, the, the, the honor is, is mutual. So, uh, if, uh, if folks want to follow along, uh, uh, you on Twitter or, or, or see what the VR fund is up to, uh, how do they do that? Sure. The easiest thing is just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Tipitat, T-I-P-A-T-A-T. Um, and then of course you can reach out to me at Tipitat at the VR fund.com or check out our website, the VR Um, yeah, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. You know, I almost feel bad about this episode because those were three conversations that would be my favorite conversation, my favorite segment on any other episode or would be completely a good standalone in the old no pro format. And yet here we are with this embarrassment of riches and an hour and 30 minutes, the longest of these we've done yet. Uh, and it's not just because we were off for a week. It's it's because of like the way the scheduling went and the fact that like with each of these, like I just didn't want to, in fact, we've got another like almost half hour with Scott. Um, just, just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful group of conversations, uh, and just charging me back up, uh, getting me excited again about everything that's going on. All the stuff we're doing, we're putting together on the next stage is exciting. Also, uh, while I was out, uh, Catherine's, uh, metaverse noir Twitter game, uh, which was part of one of her class projects, uh, not only, uh, exceeded what was acquired for the class. She got a write up in Wired about it, uh, which is awesome. Um, we had all that news out of Facebook. Uh, I guess how do we say now? Meta knee Facebook. I always like that knee thing. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know why I just do. Um, and just yeah, just in a, a really really wild and exciting time. Uh, there's all of these marketing activations popping off, uh, here in LA right now. I'm going to the stranger things store later today. I was at latrine, which is over on Fairfax, which was popped up by meta for you and campfire for the Amazon show Fairfax, which is about streetwear culture. It's a cartoon. So they built, they built a store from a cartoon on the street where the cartoon is set wild. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a check mark you can ride. Like it's a, like a, it's a, like it's a Bronco. <laughs> I guess that's where the Bronco from Saddleback Ranch went. No, I don't know. I think Saddleback Ranch still exists. That's an LA joke, everybody. Uh, sorry. Apologies. Look, the point is, is that it's like next door to Cantor's. So swing by, get a nosh. Uh, I recommend the macaroons. Um, I do. I bought like a bunch of them. My mom likes them too. Apparently they were my grandfather's favorite cookie some things it's in the blood um welcome back uh glad you're here with us hope you enjoyed the show uh, not going to turn that into hitting you up for money uh i'm i'm so honored that we do get to make this for you and um the the good thing about being away for a week is um you know the the past year has been really hard for everybody uh uh, and as I think I've told some people uh, on a show once or twice, you know, particularly hard for me, I uh, had some, had some loss, had some serious loss, um, major deaths in the family. Um, and, 
And every single, every single break I took for the past uh, 18 months until this last one uh, was marred by something just awful happening uh, close in in my world. Um, it, it, it wasn't blemish free this time. Uh, I was called back in to fix some issues once or twice. Uh, so I didn't get to fully disconnect. Uh, but I got to reconnect with a lot of people. I got to see friends, uh, which, you know, is, is my bread and butter. And, uh, so I got to, got to spend time with Anthony, got to, um, got to spend time with, uh, Dasha Kittredge, got to spend time, uh, I'm going to forget somebody. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll get to see Eric Shamlin, uh, 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 uh which I, uh, this, some people know who Eric is. So, uh, that was really great. Uh, got to have lunch with him. We haven't seen each other in, in a, like, well, since pre pandemic. So I got to see folks I hadn't seen in a long time. Anyway, um, this, this episode really feels like a real old no pro. So that's why you're getting like the, the kind of bumbly no rant uh, at the end. Uh, just, just, you know, glad I get to make this for you. Glad we're back. Lots to talk about. Maybe we'll be in a regular in the bonus feed soon. Hey, look, um, a lot of you listen to the show. Uh, we don't always hear from you. Uh, we'd love to know what's on your mind. Uh, if you have questions, uh, we can do a mailbag segment. Uh, it's not like, I'm not saying this because we're desperate for content. <laughs> we like turn things away left and right because there's only so much time. But I do want this to be an interactive experience for y'all. Uh, weaving the community together is... Um, is sometimes the hardest part of the job, but it's also when you get to step back and look at what's been made and, and, and the connections that people have found together. Um, and that's, it's, it's the most rewarding part of the job. It really is. So, uh, feel free to hit us up. Um, write us at, um, just for now, use pitches at nopristinium.com. You can use that uh, if you've got anything that you want uh, you want to talk to us about on the podcast. That's also where you send us information about productions that you're doing. Uh, if you want to invite one of our reviewers to check out what's going on with you, or if you have a uh, thing that you know gets done at home and you want us to review that, that's where to connect us with us there. If you want things listed in the newsletters, you want to go to www.everythingimmersive.com. And as you will note, it has a brand new front page. Uh, Chris Grimm really knocked it out of the park and we have the ability to shuffle things around and highlight new shows. And I am super excited about what we're going to be able to do with all that and that we're going to recruit some folks in uh, to to curate, give them a free reign, uh, well, limited free reign to... uh, to uh, uh, shape the conversation there. So um, continuing to build it out, building other platforms left and right. Uh, that's all for now. Um, do need your support. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, no new backers to announce this week. If I missed anybody, we will uh, sweep that up next week, but we've had like a net loss again. Uh, luckily, not a net loss in funds, but we did have a net loss in number of backers. We really want to hit 400 by the end of the year, um, just uh, just as a sanity check, if nothing else. So uh, help us know that we're not off base by doing this, by going and backing us at patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, it is no joke when I say this is my only source of income. Um, it, it maybe, maybe, maybe truer than than it should be, and in some ways. Anyway, ask me about that later. All right, there are 
some heroes. A special group of people were brought to... No, wait, that's... Sorry, that's a speech that I do in another universe. Uh, there is... Our sustaining backers of No Versinium, what if, uh, are Ari Hurston, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, David Bassick, Lonnie Hanson, Paul Farnell, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all for keeping us going. Thank you to associate producer Parker Sella for keeping me sane. Uh, music for No Percentage is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Chris has been, Chris works for a podcast company these days, and he's got some big podcast stuff coming up. Going to tell you all about that when that hits. It's, it, it, I'm just amazed. There are things in the can. I, think, I don't know when they're going up. Probably shouldn't even say anything. Anyway, Chris, congratulations. Uh, special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. And thank you to Siobhan for uh, for hanging out with me on my birthday, uh, along with some of the other folks who did that. And uh, for uh, coming through on uh, the next stage on the festival side. Um, hopefully we can uh, set up exactly what we want to set up uh, and tell everybody about that really soon. Catherine, you, of course, is the executive producer, editor at No Pro Producers, editors, you know, uh, does our headlines, keeps the ship running, uh, gets in wired, uh, drops through also on my birthday, uh, and comes through and uh, sees Capital W's uh, fire season, which is over at the Denver Film Festival right now. Uh, so check that out if you're in Denver. And uh, this podcast, this long Rambly, gonna see if I can get everyone to leave. Uh, <laughs> what's the after credit thing? What's he gonna tell us? Oh, maybe I will do that. Maybe I will. I wish I could. Actually, maybe I can. Yeah, I think I can. Uh, the No Pro Podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly. They'll do. We'll do an after credit sequence. I took a drink of coffee for dramatic effect. Until next time, I'll see you at the show. I shouldn't say anything, but I promised you an after credit sequence. And yes, this is a teaser for the next stage. Let's just say that uh, when it comes to the festival, there's uh, some peculiarities that are going to be uh, in the mix and that uh, you might find yourself having trouble sleeping after one of the shows. That's all. (laughs) 